together. An interview series exploring the possibilities of cross-architecture development with those who live it. I'm your host, Nicole Huseman. The first industrial revolution was powered by coal and steam, the second by electricity, and the third by electronics and IT. The fourth, networking and the exchange of information between human and machine, is fueled by AI, machine learning, and data science. Today, I'm happy to welcome two guests to the program who are no strangers to data science. David Liu, AI solutions engineer at Intel. Hi, David. Hey, good to hear from you. And Peter Wang, CEO and co-founder of Anaconda. Welcome, Peter. Hi, thank you for having me. Peter, let's dive in. It's an exciting time for Python. Stack Overflow just reported Python as the number one language among developers in data science. As a true pioneer of the language, can you talk about the evolution of Python? Why has Python been ascendant, particularly in data science? You know, the interesting thing about Python is that it's one of the very few popular mainstream languages in use today that can actually trace its legacy to the idea of being a teaching language. In the last 30 years or so, as software development has become its own profession, we viewed programming languages as being an expert tool for software developers. But early on, it was definitely viewed that here are these powerful thinking machines and we should teach everyone how to do it. So the creator of the Python language, Guido Van Rossum, he made a language that was easy for people outside of just traditional software development communities. And then as Python became more popular, I think in the late 90s and early 2000s, we found this community that's adjacent to professional software development. They have started adopting Python, and that is the numerical and scientific computing community. And those people have been programming always as part of their jobs, but none of them are professional software developers. Well, so Python started getting organic adoption in that space, started producing better and better tools, and started becoming really quite powerful for doing lots of big data crunching, large numerical simulations. By about 2010 timeframe, I and some of my colleagues who were working in this space, we saw that the time was ripe for Python to go into tackling business data analytics and being used by a broader community outside of what had traditionally been sort of at the niche of so-called technical computing. And so we made a push for that. So I started the PyData organization just almost as a branding exercise, right? The tools are the same as what we use in the scientific Python community, but a lot of people don't think of themselves as scientists. But if you say PyData, they think, oh, data science or doing data analytics. Well, I'm a data analyst. I could probably use it for that. And we just happened to be at the right time that we had sort of peak big data. People had put a lot of data into data lakes and Hadoop and things like that. You could use a few lines of Python to ask very interesting questions on terabytes of data. So I think the reason it's gotten to this point is just a series of maybe accidents, but there were happy accidents and they all lined up to now make this easy to use language that many people, not just software developers can use, and they can ask questions of data that are then executed in very high performance fashion. And David, you're really no stranger to Python either. Can you talk about some of the new developments in this area and how they benefit data scientists? Yeah, no problem. So closer about 2013, I really started working in this space. And from a data science perspective and machine learning perspective, the tools started reaching their peak efficiency. A lot of the technologies that have been really pioneered through Python have started 
from the needs that Peter just spoke about. So some of the new things that Intel has been really pushing in this space to really help with these type of initiatives are like the Intel distribution of Python, which is built on Anaconda and Conda, the Intel scalable data frame compiler, which allows you to compile down a data frame in pandas or other types of numerical arrays into LLVM calls that are based through Numba. We have our AI analytics toolkit, XGBoost optimizations, and a lot of the vectorization capabilities that have come through the newer processors have been put front and center for the optimization work that the teams at Intel have been working on to give to the users of Python in NumPy and SciPy and a lot of the other data science specific frameworks. So really because Python has been the front interface to machine learning, data science, AI, Intel's been very heavily invested in enabling that ecosystem with the optimization work or through our partners. Peter, with Anaconda's long history in data science, can you talk a little bit about the business implications and what you're seeing happen in the industry? I think businesses are starting to wake up to this idea that the era of retrospective-looking reporting analytics, that era is drawing to a close. And the businesses that succeed moving forward are going to be the ones that are best able to do predictive analytics. Heading to the new world order, everything is online, data sets, consumer sentiment, weather patterns, logistics, everything is changing all the time, and that creates an opportunity. So if you as a business don't lean into that, lean into more advanced sense-making, more advanced prediction, your competitors will, and they will eat your lunch, right? So I think every business now, what I'm seeing differently now than when we started 10 years ago, is that businesses actually are starting to say, well, okay, no one's going to make the argument that we can just sit still. Everyone is leaning into this. Businesses are seeing that this really can't happen unless you have digital transformation, unless you have business transformation. And that's very promising to me. Absolutely. There's this massive scale and this need for low power performance intensive computing. It's almost like back to the future, back to the past, (laughs) right? So can you talk about this really where performance really matters again? When it comes to machine learning and the analytics and the numeric stuff, well, it starts to matter a whole lot. Because the kinds of questions you ask, they're all numerically intensive. If you do the right thing numerically, it can be an order of magnitude. It can be 10x better or faster. And it comes back to that competition aspect and the competitive advantage. If you and your competitor both have similar amounts of budget, but you have software developers that don't know how to harness the best technologies and the best software approaches, and your competitor does, they're going to be able to ask questions either 10 times faster or get results with 10 times better fidelity or use a lot less money (laughs) to get the same results as you're getting. And that does start to matter at scale. So I think that's the kind of thing that machine learning is one of those things where you can throw infinite amounts of money at it. So you have to start caring about the efficacy of your dollars per hour, really your results per gigawatt or kilowatt that you put into this thing. So I do, yeah, I say that performance matters again. So I'm really excited about that. That's just a super cool thing to be able to work together with the Intel folks to make our compilers better, to make the whole stack better. That's just a really cool thing. So David, can you talk a little bit about how Intel is responding to these needs? Going back to, you know, this concept of performance matters, when we started looking at different problems within the various domains and algorithms that are prevalent in machine learning. One of the things that we came to the conclusion of is that new types of accelerators and architectures might need to be explored in order to access this type of performance. And so 
you know, from the new instruction sets such as like VNNI or FPGAs, really that exploration, you started seeing it in Intel's portfolio where we're starting to really explore what else is out there. How can we get these other types of workloads faster? And you're starting to see us experiment with a whole slew of different architectures within a portfolio. And that's been kind of a reactionary part of this explorative process. We need to get farther. We need to find the performance again. We need to really dig down and see what's out there. And that's why Intel's movement towards this increased portfolio size has been for that particular reason. And then how do you then get it in the hands of the people? Yeah, absolutely. And Peter, can you talk about Anaconda's current focuses in this area and how you're investing and inventing at the deep part of the stack? Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of cool stuff going on. So, you know, I think I mentioned some of the compiler work that we've been doing and Intel's helped provide resources there. And we're trying to make it so that data scientists can express the fullness of the questions and the transformations they want to have on their data without being restricted just to some of the bulk operations that some of the libraries you know, currently support. So with our Numba compiler, with some of the optimization work that's been done by the Intel folks, we're now able to give a tool to your data analysts and data scientists to really go much deeper, to be able to transform and write loops and write different kinds of expressions that will optimize down and run really fast on Intel hardware. One of the things that we see right now that's kind of problematic, that I see at least, is that people are generally aware there's, you know, higher levels of performance available, but they see them as being kind of exotic. And so they will tend to stay close to the familiar APIs and familiar libraries until they run into some ceiling of performance. And like, okay, now I got to go and learn this other thing, right? And so people have a reticence to learn these new things because, well, frankly, they're busy and their time is worth money to their employers, right? So you can't really fault them for that. But what we like to do is, you know, get people so they don't feel like they have to go to C++ or have to go and learn some exotic new things. They can use Python, use some of the bridging layers that we're working with the Intel teams on so that they can keep building with Legos. They don't have to go and make exotic 3D printed custom things. They can keep working with Legos, but we're sort of getting them titanium Legos. We're giving them Legos that have some real juice to them so they can use the APIs they're familiar with. They can use the tools that they know and love, but they can just get performance, I won't say for free, there's always a little bit of work, but it's not a lot. It's not like throwing everything you know away and learning a whole new tool set. So I think some of the things that we're doing in parallelism with Dask, some of the things that we've been doing on the Numba side, you know, we have to work with folks like Intel to make this work well. It's simply too much work for a company like us to take on. And working with the Intel engineers, they can surface up those pieces from the ground up and we can meet them in the middle and say, well, here's what we need from the top down. Let's meet in the middle and provide nice sets of intermediate interfaces so we can lower those computations down and have them be scalable, have them be performant. That's just a really neat thing. And it is a team effort. Let's talk a little bit about how Python plays with things like DPC++ and one API when we talk about heterogeneous computing and cross-architecture. One of the more interesting aspects of being in the Python space or being a developer or user of it is finding ways of actually getting Pythonic access to hardware. And that's historically been a very difficult aspect. You either have to you know, directly call it out, you have to find ways that packages are built with that driver already built in, or you're depending on the runtimes to get there. And with heterogeneous computing, that just amplifies the challenge, right? So now you're not just looking at CPU and GPU, looking at FPGAs, ASICs, whatever else is coming down the line. And one of the links, if you've ever worked really in this space of enabling these type of frameworks, is you really have to drop down to the C++ level, in this case, the DPC++ that one API is providing, 
is that link to get the performance from that heterogeneous hardware. And that's been one of the more interesting pieces that I've been looking at as both a developer and a user is where as a developer can I actually make this available for packages and then how can I then give this out to other data scientists or other scientists in general to be able to access this hardware and Peter's titanium Legos. Like how do you build the titanium Lego from these bits? Peter, do you want to talk a little bit about that? One of the things that I would say about that is that with DPC++ and the One API stuff, what Intel's done there is something I think that essentially any hardware vendor that's going to be successful moving forward is going to have to do. Because I know I talk about Python a lot for obvious reasons, but it's not just about Python. It's really anyone who's programming at a higher level. It could be JavaScript, right? It could be Python. It could be certain classes of C++ developers even. They're just at a certain level in the abstraction space. And right now, because performance matters again in computing, all of the chip manufacturers are looking for ways to develop more innovation and innovate in places like high performance, low power, in the field kinds of things. So we talk about IoT, you can talk about edge computing, all these things. All of those different kinds of hardware profiles will lead to a explosion of complexity and in interfaces. And you run the risk that you make all these chips and nobody can program for them. So once you have this variety and heterogeneity, it has to kind of come up and roll up into some kinds of plateaus of abstraction. And so I think that what Intel's doing with One API makes a lot of sense. And we're trying to build a bridge from that level of abstraction to the next level of abstraction, which is, or the next plateau, right, which is kind of that Python NumPy layer. So I think that it's sort of a natural feature of the evolutionary landscape and the innovation landscape. So Peter, as you look forward, what are you most excited about? You know, I feel like we're just still getting started with all this Python stuff, even though technically the scientific computing and numerical landscape of Python is 20 years old, at least, and certainly the Python data stuff is 10 years old. I feel like we're just getting started because where I think this stuff gets really beautiful is when the average person in business can reach for these kinds of tools. They're not afraid to ask questions about their data and about the models. They're not restricted just to spreadsheet thinking. They're not restricted just looking at a PowerPoint and saying, I guess I'll accept that chart at face value, right? I look forward to having data literacy in the hands of the vast majority of people because I think it's a deeply empowering thing. And that's made possible by, you know, the work of everyone up and down the stack, people at Intel, people like us, the large ecosystem of open source innovators out there. It's really about technology empowering people to make better decisions and to feel more empowered and to do better thinking. David, how about you? Well, actually, I do have a question for Peter in this case, actually. Um, <laughs> okay, great. Well, you know, in talking about this future, you know, so you're talking about data literacy and kind of a productivity first focus, right? When you see the different types of hardware being developed out here, so like, you know, some of the ones I mentioned today, you know, FPGAs, the ASICs, mm -hmm. the GPUs, right? So where do you see the average user really trying to put their headspace when working on a problem? Will they be looking at the problem in conjunction with hardware or will it be an abstraction layer that's higher? Like where do you see that workflow coming to? So I think where that workflow ends up in the long, long term is that we have to be able to synthesize up from the hardware and expose the cost and the time. So the dollars and the wall clock trade-offs of certain kinds of operations and being able to surface that up as an option for the user. You know, I think now people generally assume you're given a language, you're given a framework, you're given a computer, and you ask questions that fit in the computer. 
right? It's like I give you a car and then you can only go so far in the car. I think people in the future, all sorts of computing will be available to them. All sorts of topologies of compute and types of processors will be available to them. So then it's like people are looking at a selection of cars and a road atlas and saying, which car do I want to drive down which roads to get to where I want to go? That's going to have to be the thing. And it's a different kind of mindset than right now where it's everyone, I have a work laptop or I have access to this cluster and that's all I've got. We're already seeing people move out of that mode. They're renting supercomputers by the hour, right? They've been doing that for years now. So I think we're going to get people thinking about the data, the questions they want to ask, and they also need to surface up the cost of compute, time as well as budget, put it all together and make a plan. And this can be not so onerous of an overhead as this. It could be something much more dynamic, right? But something like that, I think, is going to be the mode people are going to have to be in, just because the opportunity space involves all of these things, right? If you want to spend more money, you can get certain things faster. If you want to spend less money, then you have to work a little harder, right? That's the mode people are going to be in. You know, this concept of a data parallel Python, I think that was tossed around a few times from various PyCon, SciPies, mm-hmm. other types of events. Peter, I was really wanting to see your ideas, especially, you know, on the topic with one API being up here and all the different types of DPC++ optimizations that, you know, we have available. Where do you see that intersection coming to? Is it close? What needs to be pioneered to get something like that off the ground? Is it mature enough for that? Well, I think we have data parallel Python at different levels of the parallelism and complexity tree. It's not unified. And I think that the unification is going to be difficult within the confines of the existing syntax of the language. And that's a big statement and that's a mouthful. So let me just say it again. As long as Python looks like what it does, there's only so much you can do with data parallelism. So the API being more restrictive and the NumPy mentality of making arrays, or is it just the productivity level? No, I think the concepts are fine. I think that within each of the sort of zones of data parallelism that we have, we can make some improvements for sure. And we can do some unification across them. That's going to involve compiler work as well as data structure work. And we'll get there. For me, the promised land is something like a combination of a minimal Python-ish thing. It looks like Python. It looks like Julia. It's all syntactically about the same. Some of the concepts that are data intensive that come from Link, from Language Independent Query, you know, the stuff from Microsoft. Maybe some ideas from F-sharp there even. And Julia's functional. I mean, there's a lot of overlap in the ideas. When you get to the data parallelism stuff, it looks a lot like functional programming, right? And then the beautiful set of ideas that have been lost in the mainstream that come from Arthur Whitney, from K and from the concatenative programming folks. So the new stuff he's working on, that's where I think the next big revolutionary change will come in. I think evolutionarily, Python... There's spaces that we will evolve into, but we're burdened by our success. There's just millions of lines of code that works right now. You can't break with that syntax very much, right? So I think that Python itself and data parallel Python as a concept will get to certain levels, but I think there is sort of a ceiling of evolution. The tree will only go so far as long as it's a tree made of wood, right? I think that's kind of where we're at. The fundamental limiting stress tensor of Python is the syntax. And once you change the syntax enough, it's no longer Python, right? Excellent. Thank you both. Thank you. This is fun. Data science is such a quickly evolving space. We look forward to having you both back on the program. For all of you listening, thanks so much for tuning in. Let's continue the conversation at oneapi.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 